You're listening to Flipping the Barrel Podcast, a women's perspective in oil and gas. We are your hosts, Macy and Jamie. And our mission here is simple, to bring you the untold stories of this industry. Welcome back to another podcast. Today's an exciting episode. We have our first solar CEO today. So you're going to get to hear a really diverse background. We're really excited for y'all to hear all about Steph Spears, who is the co-founder and CEO at Solstice. She is responsible for external engagement and partnerships, marketing and communications, raising capital, and expansion of the business. She's a social entrepreneur and community builder with an operational experience in the U.S., Middle East, and South Asia. Not to mention, Steph holds a BA from Yale, a master's in public affairs with a distinction from Princeton, and an MBA from MIT. Let's just say she's extremely educated (laughs) and is a recipient of the Paul and Daly Source Fellowship for New Americans. Also, let's just say her achievements at such a young age are pretty inspiring, and not to mention she's spearheading one of the biggest operations to help communities be able to access solar. Steph, thank you so much for coming on today. Thanks so much for having me. Appreciate it. All right, Steph, well, let's dig right into it. Tell us a little bit about growing up. Where are you from, and what was life like growing up as Steph? Sure. So the reason I'm probably over-educated is because I was the child of immigrants and education is really important in a lot of immigrant families. So I grew up in Hawaii. I was born and raised in Hawaii. And so that was the reason why I think even though I never considered myself a environmentalist per se, I grew up very close to beautiful places and seeing beautiful places all around us. And in Hawaii, you grew up with this ethos of taking care of the land. In Hawaiian, we call it malama aina. And it means to take care of the land literally, but it also means to take care of the things that nourish us. So the people and the places that nourish us, you're supposed to take care of them. And it's not about actually in Hawaiian culture, it's interesting. It's not about conservation. It's about giving back to the land, taking care of it so that it can give to you. So you have more of a symbiotic experience with the land, which is really interesting. Mm. I was raised by a single mom. She raised three kids on what started as a minimum wage salary. And minimum wage is pretty low in this country. And raising three kids on minimum wage is really, really difficult. So I saw her struggle my whole life to pay for the bills. You know, sometimes it was a decision of, do we pay for electricity or do we pay for rent? What gets paid this month? Or do we pay for this healthcare bill or do we pay for food? And so my mom never let us go hungry and sometimes she would go hungry so that we could eat. And she also, because she's an immigrant and she worked in a call center for her job, she would get yelled at every day and told to go back to her own country because of her immigrant accent. So to watch the strongest, most incredible woman you've ever known, my mom, live a life of struggle because of things that are outside of her control, that was really, really important for me to witness. And it had an effect on, I think, the rest of my life and what I choose to do in my work. Wow. That's, I mean, thank you for sharing that. That is such a personal experience too that, you know, you grew up with. And I think that really shows, you know, when we get into your whole story, you know, how you were able to overcome so much and, you know, get these roles that you have while, while growing up. And, you know, as you said before, you know, being an immigrant, you 
were overly educated. So do you think that your parents had a strong influence on, you know, going and getting all these educations? And, and also you mentioned that, you know, you, your mom make minimum wage. So was it difficult to, you know, be able to attend these colleges? Cause you did go to, you know, Yale and Princeton, you know, with not being, you know, not coming from, you know, your parents' background being in either one of those universities. Yeah, I know it's a stereotype of immigrant families to want to go to an Ivy League school. And definitely that was true in my family too. Jokingly, you can go to any school, it just has to be Ivy League. And that I think kind of gets past what my mom's intent really was. And she taught us from an early age that wealth was not about the money you had. Wealth was not about the things that you owned even. Wealth was about the things that you had that no one could take away from you, even if you fell on hard times. And so education was a form of wealth. Like once you get that education, once you learn all the things and you suddenly go broke, you'll still have your education and no one can take that away from you. So that was what really drove my mom's early you know, pressure to focus on school. And then honestly, you know, I think it's really interesting to ask people where they get their confidence from. People generally, when I ask them that question, they'll answer that I got my confidence from doing something when I was younger that I was either good at or I worked really hard to get good at. Mm -hmm. And I saw the outcome from that. And I saw confidence is merely a belief in your own ability to realize the things that you are hoping to realize. And so, especially as, as you two as young women leaders in, in oil and gas and other women I talked to in energy, I think if we all had been raised with a view of let's do whatever we dream of and who cares about fear of failure, then we could achieve so many incredible things. And so that's essentially what my mom taught us is that it doesn't matter if you're poor. It doesn't matter if you have a bad credit score. It doesn't matter if you have not a dollar to your name. You can still be successful through your own work and through also a little bit of luck too. I love that. Um, I relate on like all sorts of levels, immigrant family, raised with a single mom. And again, like people would always ask about the confidence and it's like, I saw my mom kill herself for me. And again, like you said, education was such a big importance as well. So thank you for sharing that. Talking about your dad on the side, you mentioned that he had started a few companies and failed even after years of really hard work. I know growing up and seeing that on the side, it's probably something like, oh, I don't want to be an entrepreneur one day because I see how much you have to work and you're not even guaranteed that you're going to be successful. So now that you are an entrepreneur and even a CEO of a company, how is that in terms of changing your mindset? Yeah, I didn't want to be an entrepreneur at all, at all, at all, because I'd only seen the bad parts of it, frankly. You know, my dad's business failed. And because my dad's business failed, we suddenly had no money and he struggled to get another job because he was an older person who had been an entrepreneur his whole life. And so that's not necessarily the most marketable skill. Mm -hmm. And because he had trouble finding work, we ended up surviving because we had a time where we were on food stamps for a while. And because life was hard economically for my family. That's really what drove my family to split up. And my mom raised us on her own after that. So, you know, when you see only the bad side of entrepreneurship, it's not necessarily something you want to run towards. What I realized later though, was that entrepreneurship doesn't have to be just about starting your own thing. And that even in 
companies where people are working jobs and companies, like they can be more entrepreneurial too. And entrepreneurship at its heart is about seeing that there's a gap in the world Mm -hmm. and thinking maybe you could help solve that gap. Maybe you could provide a solution to that problem. And so it's about realizing the world as it should be, as opposed to the world as it is. And that kind of definition of entrepreneurship I can get behind. And there's also a lot about the immigrant story that's about that concept too, you know, that no matter how hard you work and no matter how many obstacles you come across, you can figure out a way to realize your purpose. Mm -hmm. And so that's what led me to want to start this company, even if I had traumatic experiences with entrepreneurship. I really like how you put that though, because on the podcast, we've talked to a lot of different CEOs that say the same thing, like advocating within inner company, you can be an entrepreneur as well. You don't have to just own your own company to be, you know, quote unquote, an entrepreneur. It is a mindset too. So no, I fully agree with that. And thank you for sharing. To go back to kind of your history and, you know, some of your first jobs, you were in public affairs and you worked in the White House actually, which is pretty exciting. We've only had one other guest on the podcast who worked in the White House, and that was Leslie Beyer. And you became the director for Yemen at the National Security Council for Yemen, which that's a huge job. What do you think made you right for this role? And how did you learn about the culture when you had to be there? I mean, it's very different. So how did you adapt? Yeah, I want to be totally transparent to you and your audiences. I probably wasn't qualified for the job when I first got (laughs) it. I was 25. I had studied international development in school, but mostly I had spent a year as an assistant in that Middle East office of the White House asking for more work. And just slowly just, you know, asking anyone, if you have any extra work, I will do it for you. And so after a year of that, then the Arab Spring broke out and there was more work to do and then time to do it in. And that year I had spent asking for more work and doing little things for people paid off. Like they started giving me more, uh, bigger and bigger assignments. And then I had the idea of summarizing all that was happening in the Arab Spring across the entire Middle East summarizing that into a two-pager for the president. And because he was getting these reams and reams of paper of intelligence every day about every country, and it was a lot of overwhelming information. So I just summarized it into a two-pager. And that led to more complex assignments. And then suddenly my boss asked me if I wanted to be the director for Yemen, which involves managing our U.S. policy in Yemen, managing all the agencies' policy process. So you have to get DOD, CIA, Treasury, State, USAID, all those agencies, you have to get them in a room to agree on policy. And so my job was a 25-year-old was to get these 40 to 50-year-old generals to agree on policy. And you can imagine getting Secretary of State's staff and getting the Secretary of Defense's staff to agree on policy sometimes was more challenging than ideal. And my other part of my job was to, if the national security advisor or the president did anything on Yemen, then I had to brief them, I had to prepare them, and then sometimes travel with them if they were doing anything about Yemen. So it was an incredible opportunity, but it was also an opportunity in to prove myself because I was so vastly underqualified for the job. Like it, it just gave me a lot of drive to, to work hard 
And there's a saying that you shouldn't dress for the job you have. You should dress for the job you want. Like that's a saying people have. But I also think you should also think about that in terms of your work. Like you shouldn't only do the work for the job you have. You should do the work for the job you want. And I've never been dissuaded from the fact that that leads to promotions. Mm. That is one of the best advice that we've ever had on this podcast. I love that. So well put. Like, thank you for sharing that. I love what you just said. No problem. I mean, otherwise, I think I would still be answering phones at the White House if I (laughs) had You're right. You you have to give more and then start getting noticed with all the work. Like, oh, she's doing all this work that isn't even her responsibility. Someone had said this once to me a long time ago. You've got to create your own job that you want within. Start doing it even though it's not your job yet. And I think most people know that conceptually, but I think to do that, you have to do your own, the job you have, you have to do well too, right? Like that's basic foundational stuff. You have to make sure you're doing your own job well and then do someone else's or the job you want on top of that. And for a lot of people, I think that's just more job than they want. I think that's a lot of what prevents people from following that path. So I know when we spoke, you mentioned that while you were in Yemen, you witnessed the impact of OPEC in the Middle East, a country very rich in oil, but due to terrorism and political instability, people struggle to access gasoline and fuel to provide for their families, which I remember when you first mentioned that, I was like, what? They don't have access to all that stuff. You're in the Middle East. Like, you know, you would think that they have abundance of this. And you said that during this time is when you changed your path. Can you talk a little bit about the transition to energy and maybe what those experiences led you to do something else afterwards? Yeah, and my work at the White House and on Yemen was entirely national security, a lot of counterterrorism work, and a lot of economic development work, but it really wasn't about industry and business and the private sector. And so I felt when we were driving through the streets of Sana'a, Yemen, which is the capital of Yemen, we'd be in these armored vehicles and you would look out the window and people would be lined up waiting for fuel. Like they could not get the fuel to power their daily lives. And to your point, you know, the Middle East is plentiful with fuel, but there were terrorists that were blowing up oil pipelines for the country. And so even though they had the fuel supplies because of a failed state or because of acts of terrorism, they couldn't get the fuel to power their daily lives. So I felt like I wasn't spending all my time helping people's ordinary problems, which is to just get the energy they needed to run their businesses and their their families. And, And so that's what led me to start thinking about renewables. Well, the Middle East is also very plentiful in sun. And yet, you know, because it's so lucrative for them to transact in oil, then they don't really, they haven't yet invested that much into renewables. But I became interested in it because I realized I didn't know anything about renewables. Mm. And so this was about, I'd say eight years ago, I started to dive more into learning about renewables. Like why aren't they everywhere? And what's preventing that from happening? And that's what led me down this road to living in a few other countries and then coming back to the US and starting Solstice. So when you mention about, you know, what makes it difficult to have solar, can you elaborate a little bit on that? Because I know Mossiel and I don't really know either. I understand that you need a certain amount of sunlight and then, you know, I don't know how much one panel actually holds of energy, but, you know, what are some of those hard parts about, you know, expanding with solar? Yeah. So in America, I don't think this is well known, but 
almost four out of five Americans are locked out of the rooftop solar market. And it's for a variety of reasons. You know, they cannot put solar on their own rooftop because maybe they're a renter or a condo owner and they don't control their rooftop. Or maybe there's a tree covering their roof and why would you cut down a tree to put solar on your roof? Maybe your roof faces the wrong way, meaning it should face south for maximum sun exposure, but if it faces east, west, or north, it's not ideal. Maybe there's something wrong with the roof, like it's made out of the wrong materials, like slate, or it's flat. Or maybe they don't have the finances to pay for solar on their own home. Like sometimes it'll cost ten to $40,000 depending on state benefits for solar. And then even if you can't pay for it upfront, there's a lot of financing available, but you have to have a high FICO credit score to get access to that financing. You have to have a credit score of 680 and above. Mm. And more than half the country doesn't have that FICO credit score. So when you look at all of those reasons, you begin to see, oh, this is why only one out of five Americans really have access to solar and they're special unicorns. And so if you can put solar on your own rooftop, you should, but that's why we focus on a different type of solar called community shared solar instead. Okay. Interesting. And you kind of mentioned it in the beginning, but just for some more advice for those looking to wanting to become an entrepreneur, because, you know, you came into this and you already just said, you know, the difficulties in what you're trying to create with solar. So you're going into a business as a CEO up against a lot of, you know, blocks, I'd say in the road or, you know, you got a lot to climb, but it doesn't hold you back. So what has, what do you think or what advice can you give for those that, you know, are looking to be an entrepreneur and, you know, it hasn't become as glamorous probably as many people think, what advice would you give them, you know, to keep pushing through and to overcome those obstacles? Yeah, it's not a glamorous life for sure. And it also statistically will result in failure. And so those things can be really overwhelming for people and say, you know, I don't know if this, this is worth it, or I don't think I'm up for the challenge. And the thing is, like, I would just tell people don't really worry about that stuff that I was surprised that, you know, I no longer care as much about failure. Like I no longer consider the business failing to be ruining for my life. And in the beginning, I used to think that. And it used to prevent me from committing fully because I was worried that, you know, I'd worked so hard to have a career and I was going to ruin it all with an idea that I had that maybe went nowhere. And then I started talking to people and I realized that I loved talking to people about this idea. I loved talking to people about creating a world where solar energy was democratized and more people had access to solar regardless of their income or the type of home they had. And it was that process where I just talked to everyone around me, my poor friends and family, but also acquaintances and strangers. And in doing that, and that, I'm still having that conversation five years later, and I still love talking to people about it. And I realized that if you love the work, if you love the day-to-day, if you love the journey, then the end, whether you succeed or fail, is less important And the journey itself opens up more possibilities than I could ever imagine. Like on our cap table of the company, the people invested in Solstice, I have some of my 
world heroes as investors in Solstice, you know, and, and they've got our back and they would never have invested had we not taken this leap. Mm -hmm. And we've been able to partner with some of the largest wind and solar developers in the world. Mm -hmm. And you realize that people want to support you. They want you to be successful, but it comes from the strength of human connection. And so if you focus on building your relationships and building that human connection, you will have wins inevitably. And those wins, even if your business fails in the end, those wins will take you on a journey that you can't even comprehend Mm -hmm. is a journey you could be on. And it will widen your network. And then you might have the impact that you're hoping to seek. The most fulfilling thing about this business is that we are actually helping people sign up for renewable energy for the first time in their lives. They've never had the opportunity before. And some portion of these customers is low income. So low income people are now getting access to renewables in a way they didn't before. So love the journey, love the impact. And then honestly, everything else will shake out and work out even if your business fails. That was so well-spoken. Again, I love how you go into detail about it more than just the surface. And it's very true. Like I can tell how passionate you are about it. And it's the passion that keeps driving you. And that's like, you know, we can, we can definitely see that even here. So our next question, and we have, uh, this will be one of the last ones is you are one of the first solar CEOs on the podcast. And the last time we talked, you provided some interesting insight on what makes a customer switch to renewables. You actually referenced a study from Yale. Can you provide some of the information on, you know, what the results of that study were? Yeah. And thanks for, by the way, having me on as one of your first solar CEOs. And I imagine that, you know, in this world, we all need to work more closely together. We all need to share information and educate each other. And you all have taught me about the oil and gas industry. And so I'm happy to talk a little bit about what we've learned on the solar industry side. So in solar, what makes people actually switch to renewables? We thought that it was because there were environmentalists out there and they wanted to sign up for green power because they wanted to support the environment. And that's true for some people. But the number of people that actually have signed up for green power in the United States is only about 6 million households out of about 130 million households in America. Only six have decided to sign up for green power in some way, whether it's putting solar on their home or signing up through an alternative energy supplier. So that tells you a couple of things. I think what it tells you is that people don't sign up in mass yet. And they also, I think a big driver of that is the fact that renewable energy often costs more to people and people don't want to pay more or they cannot pay more for renewables. And so the key to unlocking mainstream access to renewables is about making it accessible and cheaper. And actually a few weeks ago, the International Energy Agency just put out a new report that said that solar is now the cheapest fuel for energy in in the world. And so that cost coming down over time has allowed us to now have this new conversation about how do we get it to the mainstream? How do we get it to more people? Mm -hmm. And what we've learned is it's not actually people signing up for environmental benefits or just financial savings alone. A Yale study that looked at why people put solar on their own rooftops found that the number one reason why people sign up for solar is because they have a friend or a neighbor that went solar. Mm. So solar is contagious in personal networks. 
And, you know, alongside this individual choice option, there's also obviously policy happening. There's more utilities that are switching to utility scale solar. And that's, that's obviously a trend that's happening. But when we're talking about individual choice, people do things that their friends and neighbors are doing. Like that's how we buy other things in our lives, right? And so it's really interesting because solar is sold stranger to stranger generally. It's sold at farmer's markets. It's sold at cold calling or direct mail or yelling at you as you walk by in Home Depot, the way solar is sold. But this insight made us say, we have to sell solar within networks of trust. Mm -hmm. Because if people hear about our product community solar through their neighbors, they convert at a 50% conversion rate. If they hear it from a stranger, they convert at a one to 2% conversion rate. Mm. So this Yale study insight, we found it replicated in our customer data. And it means that solar more accessible, we make it cheaper and we make it so like the thing that you talk about amongst your community and in your friends, and that's what gets people to switch. I love that. And it's funny because now I'm remembering like 20 years ago when I was in probably elementary, we did like a science project. And the science project that I did was actually to try to pretend to make solar panels on like this little house to heat up the water. And it's like thinking about it, that was 20 years ago. And I remember thinking like, when is this ever going to be a thing, right? So it's kind of cool to see Mm -hmm. that like it is true. And sometimes I do, when I am driving by, I do see people with solar panels. And that's something that I'm always like, you know what, I want to do that one day. And also that just shows you like, just because you're in oil and gas or even people listening, like I'm not against it. I would love to have it. Why? Because I care about the planet as well, right? Mm-hmm. So any opportunity that I can to help the planet and say like, why not just, you know, I've always even wanted like one of those houses that are all like renewables where they like, you know, you get the water from the rain and it, it's so cool. And I, like you said, it's everyone sticking together. And at the end of the day, it is our planet and whatever we all can to do our part why not? Right. But yeah, I think that's awesome. So on the last question is, what do you think the future looks like for renewables in general, and as well, especially for solar? And what kind of growth do you see in the next, you know, 10 to 20 years? What are you guys expecting at Solstice? Yeah, so you know, that International Energy Agency report that I mentioned that just came out a couple of weeks ago, the last report they had was in 2018. And they just released a report this year in 2020. And they said that there will be 43% more solar than they originally thought in 2018, because they realized that solar is much cheaper than they originally thought. Mm. So the fact that solar has gotten cheap in the last few years will mean that solar will continue to grow at an exponential rate. And, you know, we're in a state right now where we don't know what the outcome of of our current politics will look like, but that will change things too, depending on if there's federal support for the renewables industry, that will accelerate the change. But even if that doesn't happen on a state and local level, It used to be two years ago that the only states that had a 100% renewable or clean standard were Hawaii and California. So you kind of expect that from Hawaii and California, and that was circa 2018. Now, just two years later, one out of three Americans lives in a state with a 100% renewable or clean standard. And those standards are supposed to come into place generally by 2040 or 2050. So In order for one out of three Americans to live in a state with 100% renewable or clean standard, and many more states are passing these standards, in order to get to that reality, we need to 
grow renewables much more quickly. And all market predictions say that we will get to that level in the next couple of decades. Wow. That's really informative. You know, it's funny because that's EIA, right? IEA. I, yeah. IEA. Okay. I always make yeah. up. I used to yeah. read about them all the time. I used to do market research. So very, yeah. thank you for sharing that. Thank you for like, I just love your overall perception on just the world and life in general. And thank you for sharing that with our listeners and, you know, providing such insight into solar and kind of renewables and what, and you know, what the path is moving forward. So we really appreciate you coming on the podcast and, you know, and opening up to us. So thank you. No problem. Happy to be here and serve as a resource for people to just know more about solar and the trends in the future. Thanks for your time as well. Thank you so much, Steph. Thank you.